I don't think anyone here, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know what Psalm 119 is all about. You know the acrostic nature of it. You know that it's 176 verses. Uh, There are 22 stanzas, eight verses in each stanza. Um, Each stanza uh, is set apart by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, The first stanza, each word in the first verses, those first eight verses in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, begin with a word that starts with the letter Aleph in the Hebrew. And then you go down to each segment, and it just follows the alphabet in each segment, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, all the way down to Tau, the last eight stanzas, the last eight verses of the last stanza. Uh, In fact, your Bibles may even indicate that. If you have a Bible like mine, it'll tell you that at the top. I take an approach to the book of Psalm, to Psalm 119, that is not common. It's not not unheard of, but it's not the common approach. Most people look at Psalm 119 as sort of a necklace with these eight, uh, 22 jewels with eight verses in each jewel uh, attached to it. So each one has its own little uh, segment in each part. I take an approach that looks at this psalm as though it's an individual who is um, giving almost a journal of his Christian walk, of his walk in knowing the Lord. If you look at the very beginning of the passage in Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, you see him exclaim this word blessed, which is ashrei, begins with an aleph in Hebrew. And you'll see in verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless. It's as though the psalmist is unconverted. I I can't prove this. I don't know this, but it appears that the psalmist is an unconverted person, and he is looking at someone who is a believer, and he says, blessed is this man. Blessed is this person. Then verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. And then you get to uh, verse 3, who do no wrong, who walk in his ways. Um, And then verse 4, And then it's as though he is looking at this and wondering at this wonderful thing. In fact, you won't find the word blessed again. Uh, You'll find the word in English blessed again, but it's a different Hebrew word. But this word blessed twice here, he's looking at these individuals, blessed are these people, blessed are these people. And then verse five, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your, your law. So it's as though he is looking at these individuals and this is what he desires to have and he is converted and so the whole psalm is, is centered around two themes. We all know that it's centered around the word of God. In fact, there are eight Hebrew words that are used for God's word that are translated variously in this, throughout the whole psalm. And not only that, it's also a book of prayer because almost every verse in the, in the psalm is a prayer. And so it is a prayer for this individual to have God's word in his life. It's though throughout his whole journey, he knows that he must have God in his life. He must have God's word in his life. And so throughout the whole thing, it's, it's God do this. Look at, verse, look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Look at verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. And it's over and over. It's a prayer. God, put your word in my heart. Put your word in my heart. Let me walk in this way. In fact, there are two Hebrew words that are words that describe a path a well-trodden path. And so you have that in the psalm. Okay, so it's all poetry. It's not like English poetry. English poetry is different. Hebrew poetry is more uh, of, of what we call a semantic rhyme instead of just a, uh, a, a rhyme of words. 
but there's meaning. So here is an individual who has come to the Lord and he is seeking God's word in his life and sometimes things go awry. Of course, we wouldn't know anything about that, would we? We've never been in a place of discouragement. We've never been in a place of despair. We've never been in a place where our feet have slipped, have we? Well, no, that's, that's sarcasm. We have, and the same with the psalmist here. So you get down to where our stanza is. I'm going to get, set it up in verses 81 through 88. So let's read those verses. Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Now, I read all that rather quickly because I I know our time is going to be limited. But I want to highlight some of what we just read. And I want to ask you to just, as I highlight this, you ask yourself, what's going on in this man's life right now? What's happening to him? As we read, he's given his personal statement, what's going on? Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. Verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Verse 83, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. You may not know what that means. I'll explain it in a little bit. I become, all, but you know it's not, it can't be good. We don't know, we may know what it is, but it doesn't sound good. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? 85, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. The end of verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Verse 87, they have almost made an end of me on earth. What's going on in his life? Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. That word longs is a word that means to come to an end. It means to be exhausted. It means to fade away. It's as though it's someone who is just at the end of his rope, as it were, physically. He's he's longing for this. I long, my soul longs for your salvation. That word long, we could translate as the word languish. Has a reference to being exhausted and weak and just like he's just fallen out with exhaustion. Verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. Same word, same word. It, he's, he's, and he's speaking to God. My eyes long for your promise. I need this. He has put his hope in God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise has been delayed. He's looking and looking. He has grown tired. His eyes are tired. His body is weak. His soul is weak. He is sinking into a very low spiritual state. And he gives an illustration of his condition in verse 83. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. That's the illustration of his, he's he's worded his condition. Here's an illustration of what it looks like. To us, that doesn't mean much to us because we don't have wineskins unless you have something that you've collected at home. It's not something we use. It's not utilitarian. But to them, this is very important. Most of us have water bottles or soda bottles. I'm looking out, I see some of you have, you're, you're here, and you're thirsty, and you'll bring out your little plastic bottle, and you'll take a drink. 
And when the Hebrew was writing this, you didn't have a water bottle. You didn't have a Coke with you. You had a wine skin. It was an animal skin. And you'd fill it with whatever you were going to drink. You'd fill it with water. You'd fill it with wine. You'd fill it with you know, goat's milk or whatever you were going to drink. When it was empty and you were going to store it, you would store it at the top of your tent, on a long pole at the top, and, or your home. And what did you have burning in the middle of this place to keep you warm in the winter but a fireplace? or a fire burning there somewhere. And the smoke would rise, and if that skin was left there too long, what would happen to it? It's, it's animal skin. It's leather. What will happen to it in that smoke? It'll dry out. It'll get dirty. It'll get dingy. It'll start to crack. And this is how he felt. He felt like a wineskin that had been set aside up there and left, and it's just sitting in the smoke. Now, this is a prayer to God. And this is how he feels. He feels dried out. He feels shriveled. He feels wasted in strength and spirit. He's in this fit of distress, discomfort, and sorrow. And what we're seeing here is a description of the psalmist in a state of despair. And what has caused this state of despair? Why is in a state of despair? Verse 82, the end of verse, it says, My eyes long for your salvation. I ask, what's the question he's asking God? When will you comfort me? Verse 83, I become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I haven't forgotten your statutes. It's, it's as though I might be forgotten up here like a wineskin in the smoke, just be left here to shrivel and die. But I haven't forgotten your word. Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? He's asking the Lord, when are you going to do something? You see what's going on here? You see what's happening with the psalmist? Here in these verses, he's being, he is being judgment day honest. He feels like he's been left. He feels like he's been despised. He feels like he's been forgotten like a wineskin in the smoke. And he's in a very slippery place. And he is trying to climb out of that slippery pit. But it's like a wet, clay, slippery pit with walls. He has no place to put his footing. There's no solid ground upon which to stand. He feels as though he's been persecuted. He appears that God isn't doing anything about it. God could do something if he wanted to. But it looks like he's not doing anything. And the psalmist is in trouble. God isn't helping. And so he languishes in despair. And he's trying to climb out of this very slippery pit and no place to put his foot. Then you come to verse 89 and there's finally a place for him to put his foot. And he says in verse 39, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. This next section, verses 89 down to verse 96 This next section immediately follows a very dark time in the psalmist's life. His enemies have been persecuting him. He is in danger. He is in distress. He is in despair. The greatest despair appears to arise out of his sense that the hand of God has been paralyzed. And there's nothing he can do. Look at the questions. Look at verse 82. When will you comfort me? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that to God? Have you ever? Now, I don't ask you to raise your hand because this is, this is, This is an awkward moment, isn't it? Because we're not supposed to pray like that. We're supposed to trust God at all times. We're never supposed to be in fear. We're never supposed to question. But here the psalmist in inspired literature, verse 82, when will you comfort me? 
Verse 84, how long must your servant endure? Verse 84, when will you judge those who persecute me? Why is it I'm in trouble and they're not? Verse 86, help me, help me. What a, what a verse, what a, what a life verse. <laughs> Lord, help me, help me. Verse 88, give me life. Chaya in the Hebrew, it just means to revive. It literally means give me life. It's like I'm dead. Give me life, revive me. He is sliding down this deep pit and he looks for sure footing and the sure footing he finds is in God's word firmly fixed forever into eternity, it says, always there. I have a wonderful illustration of this. Uh, and this comes from the life of Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you are familiar with that literature. Some of you have read it. Some of you, if you've walked with the Lord for any time, you've probably read it several times. Uh, it's a wonderful allegory of the Christian life from salvation until entrance into that celestial city. This comes somewhere around a third of the way through the book, and Christian and hopeful are on their way to the celestial city. And they have veered off the path. They look for a path, and Christian has coaxed hopeful to move off the path and look for something a little bit easier, and so they move on. As they move on, they come to a castle, and it's run by a man who is named the giant. He's despair. The giant despair is his name. And he is, they are thrown into this dungeon, the dungeon of, this, of despair that belongs to this giant. They are there. They are beaten. They are bloodied. They come to a portion, if you read the passage, they come to a portion where they are ready to take their own lives. They are in such a condition that they are ready to take their own lives. Until finally you have this portion. And there is something, and again, think of our psalmist in these, in these verses, in verses 81 through 88, of this horrible condition in which he finds himself. But there's a place where he finds his sure footing. How does he get out of that? What does he do? Listen to the words of Christian in, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Here's Bunyan's narr- narration. Now, a little before it was day... And by the way, they'd been here for at least a week, maybe two. They had been beaten every day unto, unto death. Now, a little before day, good Christian, as one half amazed, break out into this passionate speech. It's as though all of a sudden it's come to him. How to get out of this place? What a fool am I, said Christian. Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. I am persuaded it will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said hopeful, that's good news. You talk about the understatement of the century. That's good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door whose bolt as he turned the key gave back and the door flew open with ease and Christian and Hopeful both came out. What did he have in his bosom? But a key, and that's the key of promise, just the promise of God's word that God is faithful and God would not leave him without help from his word. I'd like to preach to you this morning on the subject of trust in God's faithful word. 
trust in God's faithful word. May we take just a moment to pray the Lord's prayer, to pray the Lord's blessing on our time together, and ask for the Spirit's leadership and guidance as we look in his word. Let's pray, please. Our Father, we thank you for the time we have together in your word. And as we open it up, I pray that we might find in it those precious jewels and gems which are for our good and for your glory. We pray that we might be careful, that we be mindful of what your word says, careful to exposit it carefully, and to draw out from it what it says, that we might lift you up. Please, precious Spirit of God, be our teacher today. Open our eyes, illuminate your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to divide this particular segment into two portions. We're going to take the first four verses and then the last four verses. Uh, The first four verses we are going to call the faithfulness of God's word expressed. And he's going to just express the faithfulness of God's word. And then the second portion, verses 93 through 96, we're going to see the faithfulness of God's word experienced, where the psalmist actually experiences this for himself. So the first thing we see is the faithfulness of God's word expressed, and there are three points we're going to look under this first major heading. The first thing we see is an affirmation of the faithfulness of God's word. He affirms that God's word is faithful. Look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That's an affirmation of the faithfulness of God's word. It is firmly fixed. The psalmist is affirming the truth that God's word is faithful It is unchanging. It has a firm foundation. The words firmly fixed have reference to a pillar that is solidly anchored in the ground. It is settled. It is un or immovable. Cannot be moved. It is anchored. Uh, like, Like a pillar in a building has to be anchored and it will not move. You can see again why in in verses 81 through 88 where he's in this horrible slippery place where he's about to fall, he's crying for help, God is not there, he is languishing away and yet he pulls from his bosom that key of promise as did Christian and said your word is firmly fixed and that's what unlocks the door of his prison. That's the firm footing that he finds so that he can climb out of that pit of despair in which he finds himself. Albert Barnes in his commentary says this, what God has ordained as law will always remain law. What he had affirmed would always remain true. What he had promised would be sure forever. So the psalmist is setting forth a proposition that God's word is forever and that it is unchanging, and that it is established. That's an affirmation of the faithfulness of God's word. God's word is eternal. It is imperishable. It is not going to change. It is constant. There's no changing in God's word. This is why we have a book in our laps that extends back over three centuries, and yet it is the same today as it was yesterday, as it was centuries ago. It is absolutely the same. It is settled in heaven, firmly fixed forever. You move on to the next two verses. So that's the affirmation of the faithfulness of God's word. The next two verses, we see the psalmist providing evidence as to the faithfulness of God's word. In other words, he's saying God's word is firmly fixed and it's firmly fixed for heaven uh, eternally. And now let me show you how, let me prove this to you. He gives evidence of it in verses 90 and 91. He says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth 
and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. That's not just an affirmation of the faithfulness of God's word. That is a demonstration of the faithfulness of God's word. God's word is faithful because God is faithful. The psalmist draws the reader's attention to something about God that, has, that manifests his faithfulness. In other words, since God is faithful, how might we see that faithfulness manifested? Well, verses 90 and 91. Your faithfulness is Jewish to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. Not just the earth, but the earth and all of the celestial host. By your appointment, verse 91, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. God has set up the heavens and the earth by his creative hand, and they faithfully remain. Again, verse 90, you have established the earth, it stands fast. The meaning is that God has created all things, and all things stand fast. The idea being conveyed is that in the created order remains functioning. The earth rotates around the sun at a given speed. Now, I, I, am, no, I am no scientist. I, I, I do work with, with children in special education, which is good for me. But the earth moves around the sun at a certain speed. It doesn't change. That, that moon will go around the earth at a certain time, and it does it all the time, all the time, every day. And the earth goes around the sun once a year. Once a year, once a year. The oceanic tides ebb and flow with measurable precision. The sun will rise at a certain time. In fact, you could get online today and find out what time the sun will rise three months from now. That's how precise it is. And this is all because of God's hand and God's decision. This is the evidence of the faithfulness of God's word. God's promise is sure it will not change. And the evidence of that is in his, created, in his creation. By your appointment, verse 91, they stand this day. That word appointment is one of those eight Hebrew words for God's law. It's the word mishpat. It has reference to the sentencing of a judge. It has reference to a decision, an ordinance, a determination. It's what the judge says will happen. I mean, anybody here ever served on a jury? I got a chance to serve on a jury once. And and, uh, we were blessed enough that we did not have to come up with the decision uh, of sentencing. Uh, The the, uh, suspect, the person on trial, uh, gets to choose ahead of time who's going to make the sentence. And he he decided, well, I'm going to let the judge decide. I don't know why he made that decision, but he did. At the end of the trial, sure enough, the, de- the decision of the jury came forth, and then at the end, which was, he was guilty, and then the, de- the, the judge came up and he pronounced sentence, and he said, this, is, this will be your sentence, this is what you will serve, and it was not pleasant, but that's the judgment of the judge, that's the decision of the judge, that's this word, by your appointment, by your decision, by your ordinance, by your determination, These things stand this day because all things are your servants. Folks, that is a wonderful line. All things are your servants. Let me ask you a question, congregation. What things in creation are not God's servants? Nothing. Nothing. 
Um, some of you, uh, nothing stands outside the purview of the decision and the working of God. Now, that is a pillow upon which you can rest your head. God's absolute sovereignty over all things. One person has said that there is not a rogue molecule in the universe. Every molecule moves at the hand of God. And the psalmist says here, by your appointment, by your decision, by your judgment, all things stand fast. And again, we're looking at an evidence of the, of the standing fast of God's word in his promise. It will not change. By your appointment, they stand this day. Why is that? Because all things, verse 91, are your servants. They move because they obey God. They do what God says. The creation abides because God has appointed it so by his word. So all things are at the servant, are the hands of God. Summer will follow winter. Fall, summer will fall, yes, will follow spring. <laughs> I told you I was taught in special ed, so I, I missed some of these things. But the seasons, one season will follow another, will follow another, will follow another until God decides that it won't. But that's up to him. And so the psalmist is putting forth an evidence of the faithfulness of God's word. God's word is faithful because God himself is faithful. God's faithfulness is seen in his created order. And finally, God's created order is maintained by God's faithful word. His word decrees what will take place. The last thing we want to see here in this uh, statement regarding the faithfulness of God's word being expressed, not only is this affirmation in the first verse, and then now we've just seen the evidence of it in these next two verses. Lastly, in verse 92, we see the appropriation of the faithfulness of God's word. See, it's one thing to affirm it. It's one thing to give an evidence of it. It's something else to appropriate it for yourself. And that's what the psalmist does in verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So what was it that spared him? What saved him? It was God's word. If God's law had not been his delight, he would have perished. And folks, might I just say a word of application here? This is why it's important for us to know God's law. This is why it's so important for us. We want to know what he, what he wants us to know. We want to know that. Why do we want to know that? So we can please him. We want to please him. We want to know what pleases him. We don't want to bring anything to him that doesn't please him. We don't want to just bring him things that please ourselves. We want to bring him things that please him. We, that's why we want to know his law. So... The psalmist cries out, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my way. The psalmist makes God's faithful word his own. He delights in it. Had he not, he surely would have perished. Let me share a quote for you from Charles Spurgeon on this point. Some of you know the Treasury of David, a wonderful classical work. I, I commend it to you from Spurgeon. I think everybody knows that. Spurgeon writes this, our affliction, if it had not been for divine grace, would have crushed us out of existence so that we should have perished. In our darkest seasons, nothing has kept us from desperation but the promise of the Lord. Yea, at times, nothing has stood between us and self-destruction except faith in the eternal word of God. And that's what it is. It's trusting in God's word. So that's the first thing we've seen. The faithfulness of God's word is expressed. It is affirmed. It is described and defined and 
defined and uh, given evidence of it. And then lastly, it is appropriated by the psalmist himself. And that brings us to the last four verses. Verses 93 through 96, we see the faithfulness of God's word not expressed, but experienced. Here's where he's experiencing it himself. Look at the verses, then we'll kind of unpack it. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts. For by them, you've given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. I, I just by way of just for your own edification, um, I meant to mention this back when we were at verse 90. It, it just slipped my mind. But um, every verse in Psalms, in Psalm 119, all 176 verses, except for two, contain one of those he- eight Hebrew words or one of those two words for the way, uh, describing God's law, his precepts, his ordinances, his word. There are eight Hebrew words for that, except for two verses. And verse 90 is one of those. It says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands forever. That's just one of those verses, but in connection with all the rest of it, that's one of them. The other one is, just for your own, if you want it, is verse 122. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. Just, if you, if you want that, there it is. But we see in verses 93 through 96, the faithfulness of God's word experienced. And what we see here are words of resolve. Let me show them to you again. These are things he's, he's saying, I've resolved to do this. Right, look at verse 93. I will never forget your precepts. That's a resolution. I will never forget your precepts. Verse 94. I have sought your precepts. Literally, I have sought and will keep seeking. If you want to look at it grammatically. I have sought and will keep seeking your, pres- your precepts. That's a resolution. And then verse 95 is the third one. It says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. That's another statement of resolve. So he's determined that he will walk in the way that is outlined in the word of God, which has proven itself to be faithful, no matter what. Trust in God's faithful word, and this is what he is doing. Uh, the first, and again, there are three little three subpoints we're going to look under this heading, and then we'll we'll finish for this this afternoon. Verse ninety three is a resolve to remember. Look at verse ninety three. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. I will never forget your precepts. He resolves to keep the word of God in his memory. And of course, by this he means more than just a mental assent, doesn't he? It's not that he's going to remember it. He's going to remember it to do it, right? He's going to remember it to obey it. It means an act of obedience to his word. He's going to do something. Gentlemen, if I asked you, if I said, did you remember your wife's birthday? What am I asking you? Am I asking you if in your mind you remembered her birthday? That's not what I'm asking you. What am I asking you? What did you do for your wife on her birthday? You did something. That's what he is saying here. Remember He's going to do something. He's going to observe it. I will never forget your precepts. In other words, I am resolving to walk in this way constantly. Will not forget. He means an act of obedience to his word. He will remember it to do it. And when the psalmist says he won't forget God's precepts, he means that he will obey them. 
Why won't he forget? What makes it so easy for him to remember? Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts. Why? Because by them you have given me life. That's that word chayah again in Hebrew. That's that. Remember back in verse 88? Back in verse 88, he says, your steadfast love gives me life. Here it is again in verse 93. I will never forget your precepts because by them you have given me life. He may have had to wait. He may have asked the question repeatedly, Lord, why? Lord, why? Lord, why? And he had to wait and wait and wait and wait. But God's word came and gave him life. And that's exactly what he attests to here. He will never forget that word saved his life. It brought him out of whatever darkness that he was in at that time. It saved his life. Folks, it would be very difficult for you to forget a situation in which someone or something saved your life. You will remember that. It will be something that you will be able to tell. You'll tell stories about that years later as though it were yesterday because it brought such impact on your life. That's what he is saying here. If you want to keep your finger here in Psalm 119 and look at a couple of New Testament passages, I'll invite you to do so. You certainly don't need to turn. You'll know these verses. They're very familiar. But the first of these is in John 6 and verse 68. And I just wanted to kind of remind us a couple of New Testament passages that reiterate this important point about God's word and how faithful God's word is and he will keep his promises. He is not like us. John 6, verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, we know the setting of that, don't we? We know what happened. A lot of people leave. Jesus said to Peter, are you going to leave too? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal, what? Life. Life. Without that word, I have no life. You have the words of eternal life. One other passage, and that's in Philippians 2. Verses 14 through 16. Philippians 2 and verses 14 through 16. Paul writes to this church and says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to what? the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. And so the psalmist is simply just reiterating this. It's a, res- it's a resolve to remember. I will remember your precepts. I will hold to these precepts and I will not let them go because these are the precepts that gave me life. When I was in that last stanza, suffering, sliding, slipping, whatever, I don't know what caused it. We don't know what caused it. We're not even sure who wrote the psalm. Might have been David, very likely was David. But it doesn't say it's the Psalm of David. We don't know who wrote it. And we don't know the circumstance in which he found himself. But whatever it was, it was God's word that got him out. He remembered God's promise. And God would not fail. Uh, If you'll forgive me, we have just a moment. Uh, Sorry about that. A personal illustration. These are always dangerous, these personal illustrations, because they kind of come, come back on haunt you later. But back in the days when I was going to college, and uh, my wife and I, we had a little boy at that time. He was about three at that time, and I was just about to go to my last year. And the job I had, I went to my, my boss and said, 
the pastor in the church in Florida would like me to come down and work with him for about 10 weeks in the summertime and uh, try to get to know the congregation, the congregation get to know me, so that when I graduated from college and got my degree, then I would go down there and work with that church and eventually uh, work in as a pastor and elder in that church. And everything was fine. They were going to get summer help, and I could go down. Ten weeks go by, I come back, and one of the individuals there in charge said, you know, uh, sorry, we hired some summer help, but that summer help didn't work out. Had to hire somebody else permanently. You don't have a job here anymore. He was an unkind individual. He was an unbeliever. He knew my position. We didn't always, uh, you know, uh, I would try to get along. He, he did not want to get along. And he was, my, he was a boss, not my immediate supervisor, but he was a boss. And he said, uh, see you later. So now I have gone, my wife thinks I've gone to work. Um, we just get back from this stint in Florida for 10 weeks. We come back. School's going to start in just a, a few days. Uh, I have no job. Uh, I, um, and if you can imagine a couple of college kids with a baby, we didn't have any savings. <laughs> no savings. Um, so I drove the car over to a local mall and just climbed into the back seat. I parked far off in the parking lot somewhere away from everyone and just got in the back seat and got on my knees and I wish I could tell you that I was very staunch. I was very powerful. I said, Lord, I know you're going to promise. I know you've, you've done this, you've done that. No, I was more like Christian and hopeful. And I just was very despondent. I was very much like a wineskin in the smoke. I, I came to the Lord with words very similar to the psalmist. I said, Lord, I, I, you promised. You promised. I'm trying to do all I can for you and it gets very selfish, doesn't it? It becomes selfish. It's all about me. I did this, I did that. Where are you? Not trusting in God. How terrible, how horrible that is. So uh, in the midst of that, in, in, in my prayer, uh, just, I wept. And Anyway, I came home about an hour or so later. Came home. And my wife said, well, that was a short day. You didn't have to stay very long. Did you have, what was going on? And I now have to tell her all of this. So then the two of us begin to pray. I get a phone call from my neighbor, and uh, he says, I have a prayer request for you to, to, to put down. So I got out a piece of paper and a pencil. I said, what's your prayer request? My neighbor had a lawn mowing business, and he said, he said the guy that I had hired to help me here has, has quit, and I need somebody really quick to fill in that position. So if you'd pray the Lord to send someone my way. So I started to write, and I thought, you know, I don't need to write anything because <laughs> he doesn't have a prayer request anymore. I didn't have a prayer request anymore because now I had a job. Now, the Lord may not work that quickly, but sometimes we, we find ourselves in positions like verses 81 through 88 in a slippery place, and we have to find our footing in the Word of God and trust in His faithful Word, and He will fulfill His promise. Maybe not the way we intend, maybe not in the time frame He intends, but in His perfect judgment he will work these out. So we resolve. We resolve to remember and to obey his word. The second thing he resolved, this is in verse 94. He says, I am yours, save me. And then he says, I have sought your precepts. Again, I shared this with you earlier, but grammatically this reads, I have sought and will continue to seek your precepts. That's where he finds his word in these people. Um, he is saying, I have carefully sought your precepts. He desires to understand them better and to observe them more consistently. And he says in verse 94, I am yours, 
save me. And so he, he knows his ownership. He belongs to Yahweh, the possession of his. He recognizes that. And he knows, he says, uh, he did not belong to himself, but he belongs to God. And then lastly, you see in letter C, there's a resolve to consider, verses 95 and 96. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. That word consider, Hebrew word means to separate mentally. It means to discern something. It means to understand and observe it. It means to mull it through and pull it all apart. So the psalmist is saying, I'm, I remember it to do it. I resolve to continue to seek your word. And finally, I will consider this. I will meditate on this. I will always have this in my head going through it over and over and over again. The statement of resolve here is found in those words, I will consider your testimonies. That's how the Christian walks. That's how we walk. There's always going to be a danger. There will always be an enemy. Look at verse 95, his enemy. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Well, I tell you, we have an enemy, and he will lie in wait to destroy us. It's always that way. They lie in wait to, desalt, to destroy the psalmist. But the psalmist's defense is, trusting in God's word, I am yours, save me. I belong to you, save me. And then the final verse, verse 96 I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Literally, what he is saying here, not literally, but pictorially what he is saying is that there, he has seen an end, uh, he has seen a limit of all perfection. In other words, in, in human nature, in human things, there's a limit. Um, men can only know so much. Um, they can only do so much. Um, they can only accomplish so much. There's a, there's a limit, but not to God's word. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. There is no limit. Uh, the idea that it is so wide you cannot get around. It is limitless. It is infinite. It extends to eternity. And the imagery is that there is no getting around God's word. It is too wide. And so with those very simple words, I think the, the obvious application for all of us is simply to continue trusting in God's word promise God promises and he will not renege on his promise he always keeps his promise he always keeps his word and so we trust in his unfailing word let's pray please our father we thank you for the very simple look into your word that we've had this afternoon nothing nothing profound nothing new um, nothing deep just just a simple look at the life of the psalmist and how he expresses his condition and the salvation that he found in it. And I pray that we too, in no matter what situation we may be, we will find your word to be faithful. It is always faithful. We stand on your word. We can do no other. That unless we are convinced, as Luther said, by our own conscience or the word of God, we stand on the word and we can do nothing else. So this is where we are. This is our resolve to continue to remember your word, to seek after your word, and that we will always, always discern and meditate and think on your word, that it might be our constant light and guide every day. Bless this dear congregation. Bless us all as we desire to serve you in Christ's name. Amen.